For our scripture reading, we're continuing with our studies in Mark. This is from Mark 8, verse 34 to 9, verse 1. The way of the cross. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them, ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now Lizzie's going to come bring us the message. Praise you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you want to speak to us through it. We pray that your Holy Spirit will speak to us now, that he will anoint the words that are spoken, and that he would show us the word you have for us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. I can't remember how many times I've had a free trial of Amazon Prime. I'm offered it at the checkout stage, and I take it because it means I get free next day delivery with this order and any other orders I place within 30 days. But I always cancel it at the end of the month before I have to pay anything. I have no intention of actually signing up to Prime. I just want to get what I can out of it without any cost to myself. I don't want to join, I don't want to be a member, I don't want to pay. This passage is about what it means to sign up for being a follower of Jesus. It's not about having a free trial and cancelling at the end of the month. It's not about watching from the side. It's about what following him really means, what it means for us. Jesus shows us the way. The verses just before we began to read show us Jesus discussing with his disciples who he is and what he's come to do. He's asked them who people say that he is. And then he's asked them who they say that he is. Peter speaks up then and declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. And then shockingly, 
Jesus tells them that he's come to suffer and die. He's going to be handed over to his enemies and be killed. And Peter, who's made that great declaration of who Jesus is, rebukes him and says, that must never happen to him. But Jesus recognises that that kind of talk, a mere suggestion that he shouldn't do what he came to do, but take the easy way out, comes from Satan. Peter's got it all wrong. So that's the background to what Jesus has to say in this passage. He has some very challenging things to tell the crowd, his disciples and us. But we need to remember that the way he's asking us to go is the way he has gone first. It would have been a huge shock to the disciples to hear what he tells them. It's no wonder that Peter felt he had to have a word with him about it. These followers of Jesus were expecting the Messiah, the Messiah whom Peter had just proclaimed to come and rescue his people. His coming had been predicted for thousands of years. They were all waiting for him. And some of them still believed that he was going to rescue them from their enemies in the physical sense, driving out the occupying Romans and becoming a powerful ruler. And all of a sudden, he tells them that it's all going to end in disaster. At least, that's what they hear. They really don't notice that Jesus also says that on the third day, he's going to rise again. In fact, they ignore that part so effectively that they're all astonished on Easter Day when they find that he's actually done it. Imagine how Peter and the others felt. They'd just been told that everything they had hoped for wasn't going to happen that their friend Jesus, whom they loved and trusted, was going to follow a way of pain and suffering all the way to death. Jesus did this because it was the plan of God to rescue people, but not in the way that the disciples expected. We would all do anything for somebody we love. I remember so vividly when my elder niece was born and I met her in the Rosie for the first time. Never having had children of my own, I was completely unprepared for the huge wave of love which swept over me the moment I first held her. I knew in that moment I would do anything to keep her safe and look after her. And ever since then I've known that there is nothing, nothing whatsoever that I wouldn't do for her and for her younger sister. I'm sure you'd all say the same about your children, your grandchildren, other important people that you have in your life. Because of love, we wouldn't mind what we went through to keep that person from harm. The plan of God to rescue us from sin and death was worked out through love. Jesus chose to come and save us. It wasn't imposed on him. He came to fulfill God's plan and walk the way of suffering out of love. Our salvation cost him everything. It's important to remember all of that before we come and look at what Jesus asks of his followers. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done himself. We need to grasp what he has done for us 
in order to understand why he asks us to live for him in a sacrificial way, a way that will cost us everything. So Jesus explains this way. He talks not just to his disciples, but the whole assembled crowd. This is something they really need to hear. And what he says is completely shocking. The trouble is that we live in a different world, a world that has sanitized the symbol of the cross. We think of it in gold or silver or stained glass. We make jewelry out of it. We send Easter cards where it's all covered with flowers. Sometimes we talk very flippantly about something being our cross to bear. But we don't really think about what we're saying because in our culture, the words don't have the same impact. It wasn't like that for the people who heard it the first time. Crucifixion was a terrible Roman method of execution. This crowd would have known all about it. They would have seen condemned criminals being made to carry their own cross to the place where they would die. To hear about somebody carrying a cross would have painted a terrible picture for these people. If we talked about putting our neck in a noose, we might just possibly come somewhere close to the same idea. What an appalling thought. Those who want to follow Jesus must be prepared to give up everything. And that makes it sound as if following Jesus is a fairly grim experience. Of course, it isn't like that at all. Jesus wants to explain to these people that there are no half measures. Just as he is single-mindedly following the way that will lead him to the cross, so those who follow him need to be single-minded. He says that we need to deny ourselves. What does that mean? Perhaps we think it means depriving ourselves of something, rather like people give up chocolate for Lent. Perhaps we think of it as making ourselves uncomfortable on purpose, as if that somehow made us a better person. In fact, it's more like disowning something, disassociating ourselves from it as if we knew nothing about it. It's about disowning ourselves and owning the authority of Jesus. I don't know how often you've been through that car wash at Tesco. It's quite an unnerving experience. You relinquish control of your car. You drive up to the mechanism, put it in neutral, leave the handbrake off, and then you're steered through the experience by the machinery. You're taken along through the whirring brushes and up to that dryer, which I'm always convinced is never going to go up, but is going to smash into my windscreen. I think it's unnerving because normally when you're sitting in the driving seat, you're in charge. You can steer out of trouble. But now you're very much not. Not till you reach the green light at the other end and you can drive away. When we decide to follow Jesus, we relinquish control of our lives. We're no longer in the driving seat. We're no longer in control. 
We deny and disown our own will and submit ourselves to him. We're going his way now, and he alone knows what will happen. His shocking analogy of carrying our cross is to explain to his listeners that we need to die to ourselves and take his way instead. But dying is living. Following Jesus isn't always easy or comfortable. He tells us that we need to prepare for that. But it's a wonderful, life-changing thing to do. It is the way to eternal life, the way to something that starts now and goes on forever, even after our life in this world has ended. As Jesus says, paradoxically, losing our lives is the way to find them. We might want to cling on to our way of doing things, to shut him out of our lives and carry on steering the way we want to. But ultimately, that's the way to eternal death. Elsewhere, Jesus tells a story about a farmer who has such a fantastic harvest that makes him hugely rich that he decides he's going to pull down all his barns and farm buildings and build even bigger ones so he can put all his wealth in them and then he can just sit back and enjoy it all. But God tells him that that night he will die. What good is all his wealth and all his stuff now? It's no good gaining the whole world but losing your soul in the process. In 1956, Jim Elliot, a young American missionary, lost his life while taking the good news of Jesus to a hostile tribe in Ecuador. Understanding the sort of dangerous work that he was engaged in, he previously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Following Jesus, when you look at it, is the only way of life that makes any sense at all. The Apostle Paul found himself in a position where he was in prison and he didn't know if he was going to live or die. And honestly, he wasn't sure which he'd rather do. He wrote, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He saw it as a win-win situation. Elsewhere in the same letter, he says... I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things, that I may gain Christ. Perhaps we think we couldn't ever look at it like that. But life with Jesus is the only life worth having. I expect, like me, you're wary of special offers of promotions that are available for a short time only, at this unbeatable price, sales that have to end by Tuesday. I remind myself that I haven't saved money by buying a bargain unless I was going to buy it anyway. Generally speaking, if something sounds too good to be true, it is. But that doesn't apply to the way Jesus calls us to, the way that he is. This is actually an offer that you can't turn down if you value your eternal soul. These verses in Mark make us understand that we have to be serious about following the way that Jesus leads. Are we with him or not? Are we proclaiming him as Lord of our lives? Or are we a bit embarrassed? 
Are we ever ashamed of him? If we are, then he tells us the day will come when he's ashamed of us. What a terrible thought. You can't be a part-time Christian. It's no good tinkering around the edges. It's all or nothing. And that's what Jesus is conveying to this crowd. To follow Jesus isn't just to put ourselves out now and then. It's about a whole other way of life in which he has the authority. That's why he says it's as extreme as carrying a cross. And this is a way for the whole world. These days, a lot of people think that following Jesus is about being respectable, about being a good citizen and conforming to the establishment. In fact, it is anything but that. To follow Jesus is to be radical, to believe in a world turned upside down, the weak made strong, the poor knowing they are rich, the apparently foolish called wise, the great characterised by servitude. We have lost that radical emphasis, just as we've lost the shopping, the shocking impact of what Jesus calls his followers to when he tells them to take up their cross. To be a Christian is to have a whole new focus. You know how it is when you go to the optician and they slot those different lenses in front of your eyes and ask if you can see the letters clearly. Sometimes it all looks like a blur. And then in goes the right lens. And to your relief, everything's sharp and precise and you can see it perfectly. When we know Jesus, we see things differently. Jesus says at the end of this passage, there are people standing there listening to him who will see before they die that the kingdom of God has come with power. What does that mean? People have sometimes thought that this verse could refer to the second coming of Jesus at the end of time. Plainly, it doesn't mean that. Jesus wouldn't promise something that was obviously inaccurate. And anyway, we know from elsewhere in scripture that he himself doesn't know the day of his final coming. That's known only to his father, God. It may, of course, partly refer to what's going to happen in the next bit of chapter 9, when Jesus takes Peter, James and John up a mountain and there reveals himself to them in all his heavenly glory, an event that we call the transfiguration. But surely his promise refers to what will happen after his death and resurrection. Within a few years, his followers will have spread the news of his kingdom right through the known world, preaching and teaching and baptizing so that the way, as it becomes known, is followed by unimaginable numbers of people. That wouldn't have seemed very likely to the disciples and the crowd who were listening to him on that day. How could that happen when Jesus himself, while he was on the earth, never went outside Palestine? But this was always the plan of God. And when we have our minds and our hearts focused by his spirit, we understand that his plan from the very start of things was to transform lives and spread the influence of his kingdom wider and wider. That could happen because the followers of Jesus were prepared to take the obedient way of the cross and go where he called them to go. 
That kingdom now reaches far beyond the world that those first listeners knew to lands they would never hear of, lands they didn't know existed. Have we been sold a cost-free Christianity? Have we listened to voices that say our faith doesn't need to change the way we behave? Following Jesus will cost us everything, but what we will gain is so worth it. What can Jesus do with people who are ready to follow the way he leads, even if it's difficult and uncomfortable, living under his authority, open to his spirit, ready for remarkable things to happen? Are we signed up to that? It's time to get off the fence. It's time to get serious. Amen.